Please turn with me in your copies of God's Word to Colossians chapter 1. And as returning, Jeff, I forgive you for not actively remembering my birthday. I don't remember at all when your birthday is. We're still friends. Still friends. Colossians chapter 1, we'll look at verses 9 and the beginning of verse 10, the first half of verse 10 this evening. Especially this passage about prayer, let us join our hearts together in prayer as we come to hear the reading and preaching of God's Word. Great God of heaven and earth, we bless you and praise you for the truth of what we have just sung, that you will indeed finish your new creation, that what we have now invisibly and by faith, we will come to possess in fullness visibly and by sight in the new heavens and new earth where righteousness dwells. Enable us now, O God, to walk in the newness of life you have granted to us in our Savior Jesus Christ, united to him in his death and resurrection, and be glorified in this place, we ask in the name of Jesus Christ, the only mediator between God and man, for his glory, for yours with the Spirit, now and always. In Jesus' name, amen. Let us stand now for the reading of God's holy, inspired, and infallible word, Colossians chapter 1, beginning at verse 9. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Picking up at verse 9, we're continuing in the Thanksgiving section of Colossians chapter 1, which runs roughly through verse 23. We ended last time at verse 8 in that section, verses 3 through 8, where Paul thanks God for this young church. He thanks God for their faith in Christ Jesus, their love for one another in Christ Jesus because of the hope laid up for them in heaven. He is thankful to God for them. As you see there in verse 3, Paul and Timothy are praying for these believers, prayer of gratitude for God's grace. And here beginning at verse 9 that we'll look at this evening, there's a prayer uh, slightly different of request for growth in God's grace. So Paul has gone from a prayer of gratitude for God's grace to a prayer of request for more of God's grace. Another way to put it, also you see there in verse 3, we see that Paul has been praying for this church, but here in verse 9, we see what he is praying for this church. Paul is not content for this young church, for these believers to stay as they are, as good as that is. He wants them to grow, to deepen, to mature, to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, to advance in their fellowship with Christ, especially because of the Colossian heresy that is making its way into the Colossian church. Very briefly again, the Colossian heresy being basically that mix of old covenant ceremonial laws with contemporary to that time paganism. That if you really want to step up your Christian life, If you really want to have the deluxe package of knowing God and being in his presence, what Epaphras told you is great, 
believing in Jesus, that's the getting in on the ground floor, but let us tell you about how to get the rest of it, how to add to that gospel, how to add to Jesus, who is great as far as he goes, but let's tell you how to add to him so that you'll get more experience of God in heavenly places. Paul is saying, no, we don't add to Christ, we draw from him. Just as God is self-sufficient in need of nothing from the creature, not being modified or added to by the creature. So in a similar way, Jesus Christ is an all-sufficient Savior. We add nothing to him. We need nothing from anywhere else to compensate for any supposed lack in him. We have all that we need for life and godliness in this age and the age to come in Jesus Christ, crucified and raised. So what we see here in this passage as we go from seeing that Paul has been praying for this church, to seeing what he's been praying, we see a true model prayer for each of us, a model from God himself in his word of what his people should pray and ask him for. Keep your finger here in Colossians 1. Turn over with me to Philippians chapter 1 to see a very similar prayer from Paul. Philippians and Colossians being very similar, not least because they are prison epistles, epistles that Paul the Apostle penned while under imprisonment. Look there at verse 9 of chapter, of chapter 1 of Philippians. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now, just in that quick reading, what do you notice about these two prayers of Paul? What do they both have in common? Both of these prayers of Paul to these different churches have in common that he is wanting the the people he is writing to, he's wanting us today, as he himself does, to pray for sanctification to pray for sanctification. Let me read for us, by way of reminder, the bigger description of sanctification from our larger catechism. Larger Catechism 75 says this, Sanctification is a work of God's grace, whereby they whom God hath before the foundation of the world chosen to be holy are in time, through the powerful operation of His Spirit, applying the death and resurrection of Christ unto them, renewed in their whole man after the image of God, having the seeds of repentance unto life, and all other saving graces put into their hearts, and those graces so stirred up, increased, and strengthened, as that they are more and more able to die unto sin and rise unto newness of life. So that is what Paul is praying for in a nutshell, the more and more of growth in God's grace. Again, Paul is, has heard from Epaphras of how these Colossians, young as they are, are sincere in their faith in Christ Jesus. They have made a good beginning, but Paul wants them to continue to grow. He is thanking God that they have begun well. He wants them to continue well so that they will finally finish well. Paul is praying for their sanctification. This being a model prayer for us, we are to pray for our sanctification and the sanctification of our brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, growth in his grace. Paul is writing Colossians, as he wrote Philippians, 
from prison. His prayers in these epistles are not about his own circumstances to get out of prison, not even to get out of prison to do more ministry. Paul's not praying for himself in any circumstance change, and there were plenty of circumstances to change in these two churches. The Philippians were being riddled with opinions, different factions going at each other. Yodia and Syntyche are going at each other, and he urges them to agree in the Lord with the threat of church split. That was how high the, 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 um, the fighting was getting in the church in Philippi. Same with the, similar with the Colossians. The Colossian heresy is on the rise. But Paul's not praying for circumstance changes. He is praying for heart change, for growth and grace of the people of God in the midst of those circumstances. Paul is praying for not a circumstance change, but about glorifying God in any circumstance. In other words, to put it, to put it simply, these prayers of Paul, as they're model prayers for us, these prayers are God-centered and not man-centered. Listen to how David Pallison summarizes these, these prayers from Paul. He says, Here we see no mention at all of circumstances, no request to be healed, fed, protected, or for, or for other people to change. The requests entirely focus on gaining wisdom in the light of the coming glory of God's kingdom. Such wisdom expresses itself in two dimensions, vertical and horizontal, love for God and love for neighbor. These two prayers plead with God on behalf of other people that both kinds of love would deepen. May God make you know him better. May God make your love for people more intelligent. We tend to pray for circumstances to improve so that we might feel better and life might get better. These are often honest and good requests unless they're the only requests. Unhinged from the purposes of sanctification and from groaning for the coming of the king, prayers for circumstances become self-centered. And so we have in this prayer of Paul a reorienting not to how we can feel better, not things we can get from God, but for focusing on the glory of God for its own sake. And so we see two things in this brief passage before us this evening. First of all, we see what to pray for. What to pray for. Go back to Colossians chapter 1, and let's look again at verse 9. And so from the day we heard... We have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So this, this again, is the content of Paul's prayer. What he's alluded to up to this point, this is what he has been praying. This is what we should model him in praying for. Colossians, you've had a good beginning. I want you to advance further still to mature and grow in the grace that you already have. And if you look back to, to verse 8, how in verse 8, Epaphras, the, the faithful minister of Christ there in Colossae, he has made known to, to Paul and to Timothy their love in the Spirit. What better way to love in the Spirit, love inspired by the Spirit, than to pray for growth in grace for one another? Now, there are two words in verse 9 here for prayer. Two words you notice there, the word pray and the word ask. Pray, mentioned there first, is more general, any kind of address to God. You might have heard of that acts, 
acronym, adoration, confession of sin, thanksgiving, supplication. Whatever form of prayer, this word pray can encapsulate any of those things. But then moving on in verse 9 to ask, Paul is talking about specific things, making particular requests to God. Some see these as basically synonymous, pray and ask. I think it's best to see them as distinct, though, of course, inseparable. The Puritan John Davenant, for all of his problems, has very helpful comment on on this word that Paul uses for pray here. What does it mean to pray? Not just in the specific sense of asking God for things, but what does it mean to pray in general? Pray is that part of prayer which paves the way for our petitions in which we adore and glorify God, commemorating his majesty and goodness and his other attributes which excite love and devotion in us. So do you see how Paul is talking about, he and Timothy, how, how, how Paul himself being in, in the chains in prison, under house arrest or whatever form, he is praying, not just asking things from God, but praying for its own sake. Prayer for its own sake. Is that a new concept for you, I wonder? Praying just to worship God, just to be in his presence just to speak with him and commune with him, not to get things from him, but to get himself. That, after all, in a real sense, is what heaven will be, the glorified and perfected communion with God, whereby we have face-to-face fellowship with the God who made us for himself and redeemed us for himself to bring us into the fullness of his presence that he may dwell with us and we with him in a holy place for all eternity." Prayer here, Paul is directing us to see, is something at its core that is good for its own sake, because the glory of God is our highest end. God himself is what we want, not things from him primarily, but himself. That is what Paul is is pointing up here at its core, the core of prayer for its own sake. But then moving on to the more specific form of prayer, how he has been asking God for something, that that specific form of prayer of supplication, he has been asking God for something. What what has he been asking God for there in verse 9? That they would be filled with the knowledge of his, of God's will, and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Filled with the knowledge of God's will. What is God's will? God's will basically is God's word. There is no way for us as image-bearing creatures to read off of natural revelation what God wants from us. Even in the Garden of Eden, even before sin entered into this creation, the only way Adam, without sin, could have known which tree to avoid and which tree he would be given the right to eat from in that state of innocence was not by seeing the trees themselves, but by knowing God's will that was revealed to him from the mouth of God. God said, avoid this tree that you may be given the right to eat from this tree. If that was necessary, if God's word was necessary in the estate of innocence before sin, how much more do you and I as sinners, miserable sinners, need the words of God? How much more do we need to be told by God himself what is pleasing to him? And more than this, Paul is praying not just that we we would have a Bible, as great as that is, but that we would know his will, know his will in our hearts. 
This, this I think we need to see as a living thing that we would increase in what we already have. That's what Paul is praying for, to be filled with what you already are filled with. Keep being filled with it. Keep being conformed to the image of, God's, of, of, of Christ's glory as revealed in his word. This must be a living, vital, personal thing. This is not about just knowing what the Bible says, as important as that is. As, as I was preparing this, I was reminded of, of Rudolf Boltmann, a preeminent New Testament scholar in the early, mid-20th century. No friend to the Reformed faith. Boltmann taught that the Bible was full of myths and that the preaching of the apostles that Jesus Christ died and rose from the, again, rose from the dead again did not actually happen but they preached that message to help them overcome their fear of death. Absolute poison in the teaching of God's word. But Boltmann had this uncanny ability to interpret what the Bible said. He said, this is what it means, it's just wrong. I was thinking about a, a class that Boltmann was teaching on Ephesians, and Boltmann's popularity was, was through the roof in, uh, I think it was Germany, and so tons of students signed up to take Boltmann's Ephesians class. And there were too many people signed up to fit in the class. So to, to weed out more students, they said that the requirement was to, to be able to memorize the book of Ephesians in the original Greek. That's an amazing accomplishment, isn't it? Wouldn't it be great for us to know the Bible in that way? Turns out too many people met that requirement. And so to weed out more students, they said you need to memorize Ephesians in Greek and the critical apparatus with all the textual variants. The point being that many unbelievers can know what the Bible says, can have an external understanding of the Bible like the devil himself has, but not have life-giving communion with God in his word. There are many who know the Bible who don't know the Bible, if you catch my drift. They don't have that psalm vision of how I love God's law. It is my meditation all the day. There's simply an, an externalistic awareness of what it says. That is obviously not what Paul is praying for. Not just awareness of what the facts of the Bible are, but communion with the God who inspired these words communing with him in these words. Not an externalist awareness of what the Bible says, but living personal fellowship with God in his word. Knowledge, as Paul's talking about here, the knowledge of his will. Knowledge is not some externalistic thing that you just are aware of but not affected by. Knowledge is definitely not the American thing where we just need to know stuff, it's a necessary evil, but you really need to have, have cash value to what you do and what you say. Knowledge, biblically, is a living thing. Knowledge is about knowledge of God, knowing God in the fellowship of his covenant. Jeremiah 9, 23, let not the mighty man boast in his might or the rich man in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he knows and understands me. Knowledge of God is its own practical end that Paul is praying for here. Or later on in, in God's word in John 17, 17, 3, Christ's high priestly prayer, this is eternal life that they may know you, the one true God and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. 
the knowledge of God is what we were made for, what we were redeemed for. And so Paul is praying that we would grow in, be filled up with more knowledge, more living fellowship with the living and life-giving God. He goes to unpack what this knowledge of God's will, this, this true knowledge, this friendship, this fellowship with God entails in verse 9, the knowledge of God's, of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Now, in Paul's writings, almost everywhere, as here, spiritual, the adjective, should have a capital S. Paul's not talking about immaterial wisdom and understanding, which would be, in a real sense, redundant. He's talking about wisdom and understanding that is from the Holy Spirit. It is the third person of the Trinity who applies the fullness of Jesus Christ to the people of Christ. And so Paul is praying for more of that spirit filling, that spirit application of knowing God's word by the power of the one who wrote that word. Wisdom, of course, you know from the book of Proverbs, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so basically, from from one angle, Paul is praying that we would continue to live, that we would grow in living in the fear of the Lord, the reverence and respect for the Lord in all circumstances. Now, if you're like me and we're reading through this, this prayer in verse 9, there seems to be a lot of parts in it, a lot of d- distinct parts. It's hard to know how to relate them. What, is there some way to bring all these things together? Well, you think back to j- just going on the, the one verb there in verse 9 of filling that we would be filled with the knowledge of God's will. This language of filling, this language of spiritual wisdom and understanding actually shows up a lot throughout the Old Testament. Filling comes into view in Genesis chapter 1 when God creates the invisible heavens in in the very beginning. When God creates those heavens, heaven, the invisible heaven, he fills that realm with his glory, the glory of the Holy Spirit. It is a realm that is filled with his glory. When God creates the visible heavens and earth in the creation week, he makes the, the form, formless and void and then fills it with all kinds of creatures. He makes realms and then fills those realms with living things. Adam is given the, the commission in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, called to fill creation, bear fruit and multiply, to fill creation with worshipers, to bring in the image of God, to image back to God his glory, not just in the one location of Eden, but throughout the entire earth. More specifically, this language of of being filled with God's will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding comes into view in the book of Exodus. Exodus 31 and 35 those particular men, Aholiab and Bezalel, are filled with God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding to do what? To work in the tabernacle. Very interesting. Later on in 1 Kings, 1 Kings chapter 7, it was Hiram, if I remember correctly, who was filled with God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding to work in the temple. Later on in Isaiah chapter 11, Jesus Christ is the one who would be endowed with the Holy Spirit, a spirit of wisdom and understanding. We know from John chapter 2 that Jesus Christ is the ultimate temple. As he said to the Pharisees, tear down this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. And we who are in Jesus Christ are the temple, as we read from Ephesians chapter 2 this morning. 
So what do we do with all that data? How do we bring all that together? Being filled with the knowledge, the personal living knowledge of God's will and all Holy Spirit wisdom and understanding is most basically what? To be filled with God's presence. To be brought into God's presence more and more. To live before the face of God more and more. And since that filling, especially of the, of the invisible heavens in the beginning, of the tabernacle, then the temple, that filling of those realms where God dwells, would, would dwell with man is a filling of glory. Similar passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. What is sanctification? There, according to Paul, we are transformed by the Lord from glory to glory from one degree of glory to another as we more and more are transformed according to the the resurrection likeness of Jesus Christ to be brought into the fullness of his presence at his glorious return. So this prayer, most basically, here in verse 9, the content of what Paul is praying for from prison for this young church as they are about to be riddled with this Colossian heresy that would undo them were it not for God's grace— What is the content of Paul's prayer for them? That they would live in the true personal fellowship with God for his own sake. That leads us to the second and final thing we'll look at this evening, the purpose of this prayer. We've seen what to pray for. Now we see, secondly, the purpose of this prayer. Look there again at the first half of verse 10. Praying for being filled with the knowledge of God's will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, verse 10, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. So what does this prayer to live in God's presence, to glorify and enjoy God more consciously in fellowship with him in this life, what what does that lead to? What is vital contact with? What is abiding in the vine result in. It results, verse 10, in a new walk, a new manner of life. This knowledge, this personal life-giving knowledge of the living God leads to a new walk in this life. This again, we mentioned um, in passing earlier briefly, this again shows the, how radically different Knowledge in Scripture, what the Bible talks about as knowledge, is different from other conceptions of knowledge. For paganism, perhaps in, in some form in the, in the Colossian heresy that the Colossians were dealing with, paganism says that knowledge is impersonal. It's for mere speculation, thinking about stuff to show how smart you are. American Christianity says that knowledge is also impersonal. It's an impersonal body of facts Sure, we have to know those things. It's a necessary evil. And then completely separate from that, from that knowledge of facts, you need to figure out a way to be moral and live a holy life because that's what really matters, the cash value of things. But biblical Christianity, in distinction from those wrong conceptions, says this, that knowledge is a personal thing. Knowledge has to do with life from God to walk for God all the way to our heavenly destination with God. Let me say that again. Knowledge, biblical knowledge, has to do with life from God to walk for God all the way to our heavenly destination with God. That is what this living knowledge of God, knowing God, 
creates an about-face, 180 reversal in walk. Paul uses the same word for walk, of way of life. You might remember from that familiar, familiar passage in Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, you were walking in sin. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, but still living in those sins. You were on your way toward destruction. You were living in death and on your way to the fullness of death under God's wrath for all eternity. But then what happened? But God in his mercy gave you newness of life. God in his mercy transferred you out of the domain of death and darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son and gave you life from the dead. What kind of life? The same resurrection life that Jesus Christ himself has. Resurrection life now in the inner man, which will lead to and culminate in resurrection life in the outer man bodily at the return of Jesus Christ. That resurrection life creates an about-face walk. That's what that first part of Ephesians 2 is all about. The lifestyle of unbelief, living in sin, being characterized by sin on the way to the place of judgment for sin, and the resurrection power of Jesus Christ dawns, is applied to you by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, and you make a 180 and about-face walk. Yes, we still sin. We still struggle with remaining corruption. But the point is, we have a new direction that we're walking in. We have a new goal to live for, the glory of God. A new motive of love for God. A new standard of the word of God. And a new destiny of heavenly dwelling with God in the new heavens and new earth where righteousness dwells. That, I think, is a much better, much more concrete understanding of the walk, of the lifestyle of the believer. We can get really caught up here in reading verse 10, walking in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. Oh, I'm so unworthy. I could never be pleasing to the Lord. Yes, in yourself, you are wholly miserable, a miserable sinner. We all are. We're in the same boat. But we're talking about what God is doing. We're talking about what the God of grace is doing, making you more and more like himself. We're talking about that God, as a God of grace, is pleased with you, believer. He actually likes you, believer. To put it in perhaps unhelpful terms, God loves you and likes you, believer. He is pleased with you, and as part of being pleased with you in Jesus Christ, our prayer is that we would be fully pleasing to him in Jesus Christ, growing more and more in his grace until the day when we'll be brought into his presence and there'll be nothing to be unpleased with anymore. Full removal of sin, full removal of death and all that is against the character of the glory of God to be brought into his presence in the heavenly places. And we are praying for growth in that grace to make it to that destination. This, this terminology of walking, very helpful, very concrete metaphor for the lifestyle of the believer, that we are now not headed toward, not doomed to destruction, but we are destined rather for glory. We are on a new pathway, and so we are praying for grace to walk on that new path all the way to our heavenly homeland. Think of Psalm 16 verse 11. How Jesus Christ in his resurrection and exaltation prays, and it is also true of those who are in union with Jesus Christ. 
that you have made known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy, pleasures forevermore at your right hand. This path of life is now the new path of the believer. And this path that is life and leads to the fullness of life, Christ works his resurrection power for us to walk in that path all the way till we see him face to face. So we are praying, believer, not for sinless perfection before we see him. We are praying for grace in order to see him in fullness, to walk in his grace, to keep repenting, to hate sin more and more, to love holiness more and more, to dwell more in the, in the presence of God as much as we can in this sin-cursed world until we dwell in his presence in fullness when we see our Savior face to face and are so made like him. When closing, let me read the words of Pastor David Strain as he talks about how these prayers of Paul in Philippians and Colossians, as we've seen, these prayers that, that Christ will more and more make us to be who we are in union with him. Listen to this practical counsel from Pastor David Strain. Let me suggest that you take this prayer and make it your own. Pray it every day for yourself and for your family and for your church. Too often our prayers are shopping lists of needs and our intercessions are driven by health concerns and financial crisis. Learn to pray with Paul's priorities and see if the Lord will not answer with new love, new understanding of the truth, new wisdom, and new holiness of life. This is a part of God's prayer priorities. Not to, so much to ask for things from God, although that is appropriate, of course, but to ask for more of God himself to be filled with his spirit, as Paul says in Ephesians 3, that we would know and be filled with all the fullness of God himself. These are not the only things God tells us to pray for, but we do in a real sense hear God himself in this passage saying, ask me for these things. And if God tells us what we should ask him, we can have confidence that God will also give us those things he tells us to ask him for. And so we can pray that God would grant in us what he wants, praying confidently, remembering the promise of our Lord Jesus. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Which one of you, if his son asks him for a bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So Christian, our God will preserve us, will sustain us, will transform us into his likeness as he brings us closer and closer to the return of his Son when we will be made like him. And he will bring us all the way home and as we see in this prayer, prayer is one of the means by which we will make it to that final day. With that emphasis on prayer, let us go to the Lord in prayer together. Great God, we bless you and praise you that you are a God who wants to hear from your children. We bless you and praise you that you are a God who wants to give good things to your children. And we bless you and praise you that you are a God who wants to give us himself. And so we pray, O oh God, that you would be at work in each one of us here now to fill us, we who are empty in ourselves and have no resources, 
Fill us with the true knowledge of your will, of your life-giving word, and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, that we may walk in a manner worthy of you, like you, in your likeness, that we may bear fruit in this life and be kept by your life-giving power until that blessed day when we will see Jesus Christ face to face and be made fully like him to worship you in spirit and in truth for all eternity. Bless now the reading and teaching of your word. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.